As I mentioned already, we took a detour in our sermon last week to really laser focus in on that question, what is the Sabbath? And if you weren't able to join us last week, I highly encourage you guys to check that out. It kind of, I'm building on top of that foundation this week. But we saw that the Sabbath was a day of rest, a gift from God to his people, that we wouldn't work ourselves to death working seven days in a row and then seven days in a row again, but to take some time to enjoy the Lord, to take some time to enjoy this creation, this life that he's given us to enjoy. And rather than it being something we have to do, you know, out of obligation to the law, it was something we get to do. Something we get to enjoy that extra day off and just enjoy God in his presence. But the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders at the time, regretfully didn't see it that way. They actually made this day intended for rest to become burdensome. And we're going to see an example of just how warped and backwards those Pharisees' thinking were in verse 1, where it said, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to them, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, the great irony here is it was entirely lawful for them to do on the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 to 25, if anyone's taking notes, specifically say that what Jesus and his disciples were doing was okay. Exactly as they were doing it. But the problem was, as we said last week, the Pharisees didn't just follow all the laws too strictly. They made laws around the laws. So that, um, so that you wouldn't violate that one core principle that you actually weren't supposed to cross. They made a bunch of other things saying, oh, you don't, you're not supposed to do all these other things either. And they treated you like you were a real sinner if you broke their laws. So here's what they, here's what it looked like in this context. By merely plucking the grain out, they said that was reaping the fields which you know you're supposed to do with a sickle during the harvest, and them just plucking it, they said it was reaping. And then what's worse is that then they would open it up to get to the good stuff. And they said, oh, that's threshing. That's another law that you're not supposed to do. And then you would blow away the chaff, the part that you can't eat. And they said, oh, that's winnowing. You're not supposed to do that either. And then they would go above and beyond and say, oh, the whole thing technically qualifies as preparing food. So for just just having a little snack on your way on the road, taking two seconds worth of your time, supposedly violated four laws of the Pharisees. How many was it actually? Exactly zero. This is a perfect example of how tradition can become dangerous if it is regarded too highly and followed too closely. Jesus is aware of this, though, and rather than getting into a technical argument of the correct interpretation of uh, Deuteronomy 23, and we know he would have won that argument, (laughs) instead, he shows for the rest of this paragraph that the Pharisees, even, even their own understanding was writ with contradictions, as he shows, uh, begins to show them in verse 3, where he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, 
and of those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only the priests. (laughs) By the way, there's that phrase, have you not read again? Which you guys might remember, Jesus has used this one in the past. He's using this to essentially accuse these scholars, these Pharisees, of basically being unread children. So, perhaps Jesus is not being as meek and mild as we sometimes think of him in our minds as being. He's got a sting to it there. But secondly, and more importantly, this passage that Jesus cites cuts to the heart of what the law truly is all about and what it's not mainly about. You know, what David did in this passage that Jesus is quoting from, from uh, 1 Samuel 21, was technically not lawful for them to take. According to Leviticus 24, that bread was for the priests only. Bear with me a second, I'm getting technical, I'm citing a lot of scriptures, but I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. That that bread was technically only for the priests. So why is David never called a transgressor for this? Why, and the Bible doesn't hesitate to call David out for other sins he committed, why, why is he never called a transgressor for this one? And why would the priests so freely hand over to David what was only supposed to be given to the priests? It's a good question. And the answer is that this was a ceremonial law, not a moral one. This is different than than you shall not bear false witness, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, which are wrong at all times. But this was part of a ceremony, a ritual that they had. It was a part of their worship, and it it wasn't unimportant, but there were far weightier matters to be attended to. And the priest Ahimelech made a judgment call that it was better to forego a formality, which is basically what it was, regarding a loaf of bread that they made 12 of in a given week, by the way, and were eaten by somebody every week anyway, than to let David and his men starve to death. What's worse, foregoing a formality or letting people die? There's a big difference here, especially when the only exception here is that David is eating something normally only the priests ate. Somebody was going to eat it anyway. It's not like David just stormed right up, took it off the altar, and ate it. By the way, either. He he went through a process. He asked the priests. This is hardly a major exception is what I'm getting at. And Jesus is making a simple point here at the core for all of this bibliology we're going through here. There's a very simple core to all of this. If God can make exceptions for the ceremonial laws, the, the things that are ritualistic and part of our worship, In light of doing a greater good, why in the world can't the Pharisees? If why do they refuse to show mercy and in the application of the law when it's apparently not beneath God to do? That's the point that Jesus is driving home here, and he continues by pointing out that 
the priest could be accused of violating the Sabbath every week if you're going to be this rigid with the, with the law. That's what he says in verse 5 where he says, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? And I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So if nobody is supposed to work on the Sabbath, how do you explain the priests? They're working harder than anyone else on the Sabbath. Have you ever worked in a slaughterhouse a day dealing with these animals? Or, or the, the, the fires, the rituals, the candles, the formalities, everything, all of the 613 laws that they had to keep on the Sabbath? They were working pretty hard, but yet the Bible makes exception for them. They're guiltless of any wrong in these matters. So in the same way, With all of this in mind, we Christians, we too, have to be careful how we enforce our man-made traditions. Even the good ones we have in place for our benefit and our betterment. For instance, I've made it a a personal practice in my own life never to be alone with a woman or a child that isn't in my own family. It's a it's not a legalistic thing. I can't point to you a, bi- a, a Bible verse that backs that up, but, um, but it's a personal thing of mine. Uh, hence why when we do start the confirmation class in a couple of weeks, um, I won't be the only person in the room. Again, it's, it's there for a reason. Because, because, again, and not because there's a Bible verse that says that that's what I need to do, But it's because far too many people in ministry have done shameful things and have broken a trust that ought never be violated. It's sad that the the church should be known for its purity and the pastors should be known for their integrity, be the most trustworthy person in the town, but sadly is not the case. That is no longer warranted in in today's society. So... That being said, having that kind of accountability of not being alone is, it's, it's, it's a safeguard. It's a, having that as a kind of accountability as a general rule guards their dignity and reputation as well as my own against anything silly that's going to happen, that could theoretically be said or happen. But that's not the most important rule, if you will. Let's just say on the, on the flip side, I'm walking by the church one day and it's on fire. And one of those kids are inside. Am I concerned about their dignity and reputation at that point? Am I concerned about my own? I better not be. That better not give raise to hesitation when that kind of weightiness is on the line. And that's the principle that the Pharisees had lost sight of. Kind of bothers me if I think about what they might have done in the same situation. But we can lose sight of that rule too if we're not careful or this principle of keeping the, the right thing as the right thing, of putting the right emphasis on the right things. Because guys, look, this is an old church. I'm sure you guys are aware of that. <laughs> Coming close to 160 years old, we got a lot of traditions in this church, don't we? All the different committees that we have, 
all the different rules and suggestions of how many people need to be on each committee and how many people need to be on session at a given time. Uh, when we do coffee hour, when we do communion, we have all of these traditions. Whether we recognize it or not, we got them. And I'm not up here saying that they're bad or that they're wrong unto themselves, but we must recognize if they're not found in Scripture, there ought to be a willingness to adapt, a willingness to change them if need be. Because we are called to love our Lord Jesus Christ so far and above all these other traditions that we don't care about the tradition by comparison's sake. That's the point here. Which is why I was so incredibly pleased when the session voted just last month to change communion for one Sunday, you know, to accommodate some scheduling conflicts that we had going on. And, you know, that was, that was a beautiful sign that tells you guys where the hearts of the session are right now. That having that willingness to move and to change these other things. And I pray we continue in that spirit by embracing who we are in Christ as Christ followers clinging lightly to those traditions, but holding fast to Christ as we are called to do. And we can do all this. We can emphasize the right things because someone greater than the temple is here, as Jesus just said. Now that is a massive statement that's easy to miss if you're not paying attention. Think about it. In the first century, to the Jewish audience that Matthew is writing to, what could possibly be greater than the temple? The, the very thing that symbolized God's very presence in Israel. How do you get more greater than that? Think critically about that. What is Jesus saying? <laughs> I've said this a hundred times, and I'll say it a hundred times more by the time, you know, I'm done behind the pulpit. Those who say that Jesus never claims to be God have no idea what they're talking about. I don't think they've even read the New Testament, half of them, that make these silly claims that end up on cable programming and all that non nonsense. That's what it is. Because which is greater? The temple or the God whom the temple was made to aid in our worship towards. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is the one we seek to honor with our lives. We seek to honor and worship the living God, not dead ritual, dead ceremonies, and anything like that. But sadly, the very existence of the Pharisees proves that this is possible. I mean, it's, they did, they were a fascinating, disheartening character study. If you ever think about who they were, they knew the Bible better than anyone else at their time. They kept all the rules. They kept all the rituals. They did all the right things, but yet their hearts were completely far away from God. Now, I'll just go ahead and say it. I was, uh, I, I, I was doing my devotions with my kids last night, and uh, I was kind of had this sermon in my notes still kind of churning around in my mind, and I was telling them, guys, I want to tell you guys about this, this group of people in the Bible. You know, these people knew their Bible better than anyone else. They, they knew 
And they could tell you the entire first five books of the Bible from memory. You give them a Bible verse, they'll give you the next one and the next couple of paragraphs after that. They dedicated their lives to making sure they did all the right things and studying God's word diligently. And they're like, wow. And I'm like, yeah, doesn't that sound like someone you want to be like? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but those are the Pharisees. (gasps) The bad guys, the bad guys. Because their heart, even though they did everything on the outside beautifully, their inside was ugly. And that's possible. And that's possible for every single one of us, as disheartening as that is. But Jesus makes everything perfectly clear and brings us back to that laser focus of what is right and true and good in verse 7 of our text this morning, where he said, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And you know what? We even right there, Again, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, quite a big claim when you think about it. How can you, a mere man be Lord over something that God instituted? Something to think about. But that being said, as we go back into verse 7, this is the second time Jesus has now quoted this verse in Hosea in the book of Matthew alone. And when Jesus has to repeat himself, we better be paying attention. We better make sure we get the message, because apparently it's an important one. People didn't waste their words in the, in the Old Testament or the first century times the way that we waste words today. I mean, have you seen the way we talk today as Americans? Oh, that's the most awesome thing that's ever happened to me. It was a cat laying down on its side, looking all cute. That was not the most amazing thing that's ever happened to you. I pray it isn't. Back then, they didn't waste words. So Jesus quoting himself again, quoting the same passage twice, just within the book of Matthew so far, already only 12 chapters in, that says something. So what does it mean to that I desire mercy and not sacrifice? Specifically, what does that mean? You see, when Jesus and Hosea reference sacrifice. It pictures this whole Old Testament ceremonial ritualistic system. And the, the whole idea of, you know, you do this, you bring this offering. You set the calendar for this date because we're going to have this feast, you're going to bring this sacrifice. You know, this systematic approach to worshiping God. And Jesus is calling to attention, as was Hosea, is it the sacrifice God is concerned about? Is it the outward action of bringing forward a bull to lay on the altar? Is that the thing that God is concerned about? Or is he concerned about your heart as you do it? Is he concerned about you you making that connection between your head, your heart, your spirit as you're doing this? That's what it is. Guys, I encourage each of you guys, when you go home later, read Isaiah chapter 1. I don't have time to get into it now, but it is a powerful chapter where God lays a blistering case against Israel. And what was their crime? 
engaging in all the ritualistic stuff, keeping every law, making every sacrifice, but their hearts were completely divorced from what they were doing. There was no connection between the, the, their heart and their actions. They did all the outward stuff right, but inwardly couldn't be further from God. Now again, that's from Isaiah chapter 1. Does that sound like anybody you guys know in the New Testament? Perhaps that might sound like somebody you know. Perhaps it might even sound in our honest moments like us. To look in the mirror in our own hearts for a second. You know, I don't know your heart, but maybe that is you this morning. Maybe you came into church this morning. You sung the hymns. You're putting it with that guy who talks too much up in the front. But in your heart, and only you know this, but in your heart, none of this actually means anything to you. Maybe you're coming here just because, oh, that's what you're supposed to do on a Sunday. God, I will be here for you. That's what you want me to do. And then I've put in my hour of God time this week. So you're going you're gonna to take care of me this week, right, God? In this same kind of I do this, you do that kind of mentality. When none of this actually means anything to you in the heart. What God told those people in Isaiah's day was simple. Just stop all the empty rituals. Stop all the lip service. God's not pleased with that empty heartedness, this empty lip service that the people were giving. But experience God from the heart. Stop everything else. Stop all the sacrifices, all the serving, all the other things that you do. Get right with me in the heart before you do anything else. And if that's you this morning, that's my advice to you as well. Don't leave this room before you settle that business with God, before you mend that disconnect. It could begin with just a brief moment of prayer, just confessing, God, that's me. I've been doing it backwards. I've been doing all the works, but my heart hasn't been engaged. God, I don't even know why, but I want your help to fix this. And you'll be amazed at how God loves to honor exactly those types of prayer. Because that one's from the heart. And that prayer is more beautiful than any of these prayers that we write week after week in our bulletin. Because that one's from the heart. But interestingly enough, all of this is the same message that Hosea and Jesus were teaching. That it's not the sacrifice, it's the heart. Not the Old Testament system or the rituals or the symbolic meaning between all the things. It was the heart. Which is why Hosea said, I desire love. Steadfast love and mercy is what God desires. Not tradition. Not more rules. Not stricter obedience. But love. The Pharisees missed that the whole point of the law was not justice, but love. When Jesus summarized the law, he summarized it down to one word and two applications. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment. And the second was like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That word again, love. The whole law All of it could be boiled down to love at its core. 
and they missed it. And had they learned this lesson from Hosea, Isaiah, you can go through the book, all of the prophets, they all said the same thing. Had they learned that lesson, they wouldn't have attempted to condemn Jesus or the many others living under their tyranny is what it was at the time. Because you bet they did the same thing for more than just Jesus. I, for one, am grateful that God isn't like the Pharisees, aren't you? Could you imagine what that would have looked like if God approached us the same way the Pharisees were presenting that God was like? And that's why the book of James says, not many of you should be teachers. You will be held to stricter judgment. You can't get something that fundamental wrong. What would it have looked like if God was like the Pharisees? He would have just sent everyone to hell. That's what he would have done if he was like the Pharisees. If the Pharisees had their way and God was like that, that's exactly what he would have done. That's what an, Because that's what an overemphasis on God's judgment does. Because again, justice means to do what is right. And it would have been right and it would have been fair because we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Had we gone, had we not been redeemed, that would have been fair. But justice isn't what we need. Even though it would have been fair, what we need is forgiveness. What we need is grace. We need mercy. That is our deepest need. And the deepest need that the church needs to magnify to others in this season. And again, fortunately, it's God's love, not the sacrifice that defines the law. Instead, God's justice and wrath has been satisfied. The fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system has been made, while at the same time displaying the fullest extent of God's love. All of those themes converged in one place. Do you guys know where that happened? The cross. The cross, where God's justice was delivered, where the full punishment for sin was laid down once and for all, not on the sinner, but praise be to God on the Savior, where he took the wrath of God, satisfying it for us so that we didn't have to bear that. So justice was delivered. The law was also fulfilled as the sinless Savior lived a perfect life that none of us were able to live. Justice delivered, the law was fulfilled, and God's love was fully displayed. As one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, John chapter 15, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, so that even a broken sinner like myself can be restored completely to God. Not by my works, but by his grace. So as we tie these themes together, yes, let's do what is right. That's what it means to do justice, to do what is right. Let's, let's do that, but let's do it through the lens and purpose of showing mercy to others. Let's do it through the lens of magnifying God's love, not his wrath. That's been dealt with. That's what Christ has modeled to us. 
So the question ultimately comes down to us as we kind of work towards our conclusion this morning. Do we desire mercy as individuals? Or do we only desire the sacrifice? Do we desire the rituals, the um, all of the tradition and formalities? Is that where our hearts is? Do we desire to see people reconciled to God by experiencing his mercy? Or do we desire to do it the way we've always done it before? I've been told those are the seven words of the dead church. We've never done it that way before. Seven words of the dead church. Because that's, that's what our hearts might desire sometimes. The way we've always done it. Comfortable. Familiar. Organized. That could describe our worship this morning. Perhaps. But let me tell you, Friday night was anything but that. It was unfamiliar. They, those, that worship team was playing some songs we probably haven't heard before, at least within these walls. Perhaps it was uncomfortable. It was a little loud. There's a lot of people we don't know. Like, who's that? I'm nervous to introduce myself to them. And I can assure you, I don't know how it looked like to you guys, but to me, it didn't feel that organized. <laughs> but how many new faces did you see for those of you who could come? How many people experienced God in a new way just because we moved our experience of worship 200 feet that way? Guys, God delights in people coming to know him. He delights in welcoming strangers into the place that symbolizes his presence to many people. The question just keeps coming back. Do we delight in those things too? Do we delight in the things that God rejoices in? Or have we perhaps become the same Pharisees we profess to condemn? My friends, cling lightly to tradition. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Amen.